Hello and welcome to the next episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Oatari Dorgan, and with me, as always, is a man who loves to play in abandoned buildings. <laughs> I am the Adam Glass, and uh, yeah, I mean, not abandoned buildings. When I was a kid, uh, at my grandmother's house, my mom's mom's house, uh, which was rural Pennsylvania, just outside of Altoona, uh, Scranton area. Uh, behind my grandma's house in Pennsylvania was an abandoned gravel quarry that okay. we would go play in. Like, well, yeah, standard. Where would which you is, let your children is, play? What's the most yeah, dangerous thing that we have available? Of, kind of like a bombed out abandoned Berlin. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, yeah. So I mean, it's kind of a rule, right? Like, what can we identify as the most dangerous thing in the neighborhood? That's where the kids play. Um, yeah. So you know, that's yes, I understand. Well, I mean, as a child, I sought out those spaces. Exactly. Not, no, yeah. I, but 100%. Not like anyone encouraged me to go to them. I mean, uh, I feel like they probably could have stopped me if they really, really wanted to. discouraged. Right, right, right. It's also full of rattlesnakes. I never actually saw one, but that same that same mountain, they had an annual rattlesnake hunt. Oh, nice. That, yeah. Good times. Before we get into the movie this week, and, and believe you me, this is I'm not looking forward to talking about the movie this week. Not because it's not a phenomenal movie, but because it's a super depressing one. Mm-hmm. So, before we get there, uh, I do want to talk about our Patreon for a second. Patreon.com slash Lost in Criterion. Over there for a dollar a month, you can help keep us going and get access to some bonus content. We do a non-Criterion film over there every month, and our supporters get to vote on what movie we're going to watch get to suggest lists or movies if they uh, feel inclined to. Uh, And if someone does suggest a movie, we try really hard to get them on that episode. It's just so much fun talking to somebody about a movie they love. Uh, We do that over here every so often, too, on the main podcast. But uh, it happens a little bit more often on the bonus features. And, yeah, I really love it. A dollar a month. Get you access to the vote. Get you access to the current episode. Get you access to all 56 back episodes of the bonus podcast, too. Uh, a little above that, for people who want to help us keep going and can afford it, $5. We'd like to thank those people on air. And thank you so much to our current $5 supporters, Stephen Goldmeyer, Eric Coronado, Chris Otto, and Andrew Jarrett. Thank you. A little above that, we do something that I think is pretty dang special. Pat makes a piece of art based on one of the movies we watched recently. I get that printed up on a postcard once a month and mail it off with a uh, with a note for me. A little personal note from me. Written in a fountain pen in cursive. You'll never be able to read it. It's so great. Yeah, no, it's 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 really I, the ideal way to get a letter. Yeah, uh, because I you know it means something. Right. It's like you get a puzzle. It's I, like it's kind of like a New York Times yeah. like um right, crossword right. subscription kind of thing where it's like, well, you know, you could spend a couple of days like looking at this and trying to decipher what it says. Yeah. Take your time. Fully absorb it. Uh we also like to thank those ten dollar and above supporters on air. Thank you so much to our current group of those, Adam Speakerman, 
Tracy McGrath, Patrick Yako, Nina Bajnak, and Jason Westhaver. Thank you. If you want to see those postcards, yes, thank you so much. If you want to see those postcards before signing up, you can head over to redbubble.com, search for Lost in Criterion there. You can check out past postcards and buy them if you feel so inclined, uh, which is a big help as well. Buy them as postcards, buy them as greeting cards if you need a little more writing near them. Uh, buy them as stickers often, and uh, buy them as pins every so often if you, you know. And if you see art that I haven't made a pin, that you really want to be a pin, just let me know. That's also, you know, it's really easy to set it up. So, uh, but yeah, thanks to our $10 and above supporters. Thanks to our $5 supporters. Thanks to our $1 supporters. And thanks to you for listening. If you do want to support us, head over to patreon.com slash Criterion. Pat, this week we're finishing up the Roberto Rossellini War Trilogy box set, which is spine number 500. Can you believe it? 500 titles I can, but also refuse to. <laughs> 500 is a lot. Right. It is. It is. Yeah. And it's actually uh, more because so, of all the box sets, right? Like, it's probably, we've actually watched, yeah, like, well, I don't know how many movies we've actually watched. It's actually, it's weirdly kind of less and more depending on how you define uh, a title so we've had some box sets that are like a collection of shorts that we did right in one or two episodes um we've had some box sets that were uh weirdly numbered in that movies within the box set did not have a dedicated number for some reason um i yes i mean i would assume though if we actually did the math it would total out that we watched more than 500 movies well, here's here's the thing. If we did that math, and again, it depends on how we define movie in that context. Uh, but this is also not episode 500. It's actually only episode 496, I think. Uh, so it's, uh, yeah, there's a little disconnect there. And, and the episode counting number also includes our uh, non-criterion holiday That's films. True, which so, there should be like, what, like eight of? Something like that? Yeah, seven or eight of? Yeah. Yeah, but then so, also keep in mind until very recently we had a very bad policy for how to deal with uh, certain kinds of uh content and we would try to jam right. like well, two or three full movies into a single episode which was I don't bad. It was bad. And I I don't want to say that's our fault necessarily just because I also want to lay some blame on Criterion's system. Oh, no, we can lay incredibly, a lot of blame on Incredibly inconsistent on how they handle numbering box sets and numbering multiple titles on one disc. Uh, right. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we have talked about this before, but Criterion's a strange, is a bit of a strange bird in the sense, not, not to get too meta about this instead of talking about the movie, but we'll get to it, I'm sure. Um, but, like, Criterion's... They, by doing things like calling them spine numbers, Criterion wants to give the the sort of the edifice of a sort of library of being like a definitive right, library right. of things. When in reality, it's it it operates the way any other business would, where like whatever like seems like it would make the most money is the choice that's made. Right, and so like you get in this weird thing where it's like if it were properly, if it viewed itself truly as a library. That that numbering system would remain hyper consistent, right? You would be a Dewey Decimal style, like, like, where where no matter how you feel about that, um, you would you would you, my point would be you would be incredibly consistent. You would say like this is how right. it works every time, always, no deviation. Yeah, but that has, in reality they're like, well, has, wait, 
if we name if Never, we give them spine numbers, we can sell them individually. There's a bunch of weird decisions to get made that are all business. I just I scrolled up a little bit on my list, and there's a couple that are very close to each other that are pretty indicative of the problem we're talking about historically with Criterion. Uh, the Complete Monterey Pop Festival is the name of spine number 167. Then spine 168 is the Pennebreaker documentary Monterey Pop. And then spine number 169 are the Pennebreaker documentaries Jimmy Plays Monterey and Shake Otis Monterey. And while they're all drawing on the same documentary footage, they are three separate films on two separate spine numbers, plus a third spine number that is the complete box set. And then spine number 176, just a couple later, is the killer's box set that was three different adaptations of the killer's. Right, that's, uh, yeah, exactly. Or, and you know, and then more often, like, not... Two features and a short. Right, and not uncommonly Uh, we will encounter a whole separate additional movie on a disc where it's like, Oh, right. Right. This also includes this movie. This person also made that we would, we didn't feel could be its own spine number. So here it is. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the numbers are, but I would almost guarantee we've watched more than 500 movies for this. I think that's probably fair. When it all sort of like works out. And then you get something like Berlin Alexander plots and yeah, which is how many movies does that actually count as? Right, 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 it's, right. Absolutely. Each each episode of that miniseries is a ninety minute movie. So like, right. yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah. Back to, had, the, to the topic at hand. There's been yeah, there has been a lot of inconsistency in how Criterion has handled that stuff, and that continues to today as we are at Spine four ninety nine with our movie this week, which is part of Spine five hundred, a box set which was clearly meant, you know, it was a milestone. They put this out as as 500 for the milestone, but then they didn't number it right. So, yeah, every other every other box that we've encountered, and this is even true uh, in a few weeks, we'll talk about uh, a box set of Pedro Costa films where the box set is the first number, and then the films in the box set are numbered after the box set. The Rossellini box set, in order to make it number 500, is the only example in Criterion that we've encountered so far where the box set number is after the, uh, the well, films. Well, you know what's really uh, weird about that? It's it's so strange because, it, like, I can't... I, was there a time limit? Like, was the did 500 need to match up with some specific time anniversary requirement for Criterion? Because otherwise, like, why not just try to find, like, three other films? I think probably... They really wanted the box set to be number 500 as a special release. And they didn't want to make an announcement that they're releasing 500 and then also be releasing 501, 502, 503 as I guess the so. movies within 500. Right. I think from from an internal logistics standpoint, it would have made sense to me working at Criterion at the time to do it this way, even if it is not consistent to how mm. everything else has been done. Yeah. I mean, I it, in the end it doesn't matter, but like I don't know, it's just a weird thing. Um, so we're on, we're doing five hundred. This is all sort of five hundred, which is the the Rossellini War trilogy. And this film is Germany Year Zero, the last of the trilogy from nineteen forty eight, and it's uh, the most depressing of the three. Uh it certainly is. Um, 
I mean, well, especially since, like, the other two, although, like, um, Rome Open City technically deals with the aftermath of the war, uh, it is... Well, Rome Open well, City it, is it doesn't. dealing with the end of right, the war. Right, it's the right? end of the war. It, it, I think of it as the aftermath just because, like, it's, it is already, like, post, uh, like... Like you know what I mean? Like it's about them being yeah. them being pushed out, like in the end of it, and so is, is Python. They're both kind of like the the very tail end of the thing, yeah. right? right? Um Whereas this is like post war. Like this actually takes fully place post war. Yeah. All of these movies are made in the immediate aftermath of the war, and all of them are dealing with the same sorts of feelings about the war being over. But this is the only one that is actually taking place after the war has finished. Uh, and it's the only one that takes place not in Italy. Right. Both of the other films were in Italy. This one takes place wholly in Germany, in Berlin. Uh, it's also... To hear Rossellini talk about this one is to hear Rossellini at some of his most confused, yeah. I think. Yeah. Uh, he's fairly inconsistent on what his motives were for making it, what exactly it meant, why he did it why he released it uh this movie originally uh had american producers who dropped out because they didn't want to i mean to be fair if i were american producer i would have dropped out of this too like i mean i get it (laughs) like yeah uh whereas apparently uh rome open city and paisan had already caught on enough in france yeah that the french government finance this movie yeah um, well yeah I which mean, is perhaps its own weird uh geopolitical thing well i mean i think you can really you can really track it right i mean it actually makes right? it makes complete sense right like you you the amer like an american like this the way this movie deals with and portrays germans would not appeal to an american audience even a little bit it just doesn't it doesn't track with the the rhetoric they've spent their entire the last like ten like five years dealing with it just doesn't work right um it's not kind to the american occupation at all uh right whereas for for france for french cinema i can see a desire to like you you know what I mean? There's a, a you, I can see a desire, despite the fact that you there's obviously a lot of negative feelings about Germany post war. Obviously, you also have to share borders with this country, and there's there's a lot more like you probably. Well, I think you, there's you, also you knew German people before the war. You know, there's a lot right. more things going on there. Like there's politically. also the aspect I think of a movie that wants us to have grace and mercy on the German people who were caught up in this system whether they wanted to be or not whether they were actively or not they were still caught up into it and the movie wants us to have grace to them right France is also in a position where they want to have that same grace extended to their citizenry right Right. on an individual basis at least right plenty of people in France even you know we're talking about a, a De Gaulle government probably at this point, right? Had to have been. De Gaulle has his own problems, but he was not a Nazi sympathizer, right? He was, he was in charge of the government in exile. But like every other country, your your rank-and-file politicians and 
bureaucrats are still going to be the same people everywhere. Right. You know, right. and how individuals survive the war and what what alignments they made during the war. France and Germany probably have a lot of similarities in how they're going to have to deal with these people. Right. How they want yeah. these people to be dealt with. However bad it got, you can't just lock away half your country. Right. That's right? true. Um, yeah, that that's true. Although, I mean, we can get into, like, the the movie is also pointing out that maybe the solution that they that the Americans arrived upon was not maybe the ideal way to to to, to, to right, rectify right, right. those problems. Yeah. Uh, another yeah. Another aspect of what this movie is is showing us is you know hinted at in some of the Paisan stuff too, right? That the occupiers, the the allies who have come to rescue us, right, are not actually improving our lives, right. Uh, and are not interested in improving our lives. Uh, and I think it's more starkly, like, Python tried to do that, and I think did okay. Python, we, we talked about this last week, Python has a trouble, has some trouble with messaging. It does get that idea across, but I think to a certain extent, Python lacks the sort of, some of the clarity of thought that this one might have, at least with regards to some of those messaging. Whereas, like, right. this is, Everything feels much, much more dire in this than Paizan does. Yeah. And by yeah. that that's important though, right? Like in Paizan, the way the occupier occupying forces portrayed has this sort of goofiness that makes it well, you they're not helping, but you're also kind of like but also they're kind of like just idiots who don't know anything anywhere. But you know what I mean? Like whereas here it's like we don't ever actually we hardly meet any Americans in this movie at all. But right. they are we we widely understand them through the eyes of our care our sort of characters as being vil- to a certain being somewhat villainous, right? You know what I mean? Being like like actively like punishing the German people as a whole, uh, right? Like everybody's like basically no one's getting fed. Everybody's doing what's basically amounts to slave labor. It's bad. Yeah. And the only and the literally the only way to get to make money for a huge swath of people is to provide really just like in some way do stuff for GIs who are like wandering around with a bunch of money to spend. Basically. Right, right. Black market stuff. Yeah. Period. You know. Not just selling each other black market potatoes, but selling black market art. Yeah. Uh or or something. Uh, you know the particular instance in the movie of a recording of Hitler, which, uh, which I mean, which is definitely a, a there's. Again, I I have such a hard time now ascribing a definite political message to anything of Rossellini's any of Rossellini's work, but there's that seems like the most clearly written as a political commentary of like selling American soldiers banned German art. Yeah, like there, there, there's also, probably nothing more, more of an actual like on the nose political message yeah. than that, right? Yeah, but they're also doing like multiple things in that moment too, because when the Americans take possession of it, they they start playing it. Yeah, and like we pan through the bombed out Germany mm-hmm. as we have Hitler giving this speech about how great Germany mm-hmm. is, right? And we have older 
adult Germans stopping to listen to the speech echo through these ruins as we pan across a completely bombed out place. So it's also one of the most overtly political moments. Well, it's also too. where this, I believe it's where the speeches would have happened too, very specifically. Right, right, right. Um, and so it's got, it's supposed to resonate in that way. Well, yeah, for sure. I, my, my thought is just that, and you're absolutely right. I mean, after it starts to play, there's, there is a whole extra layer that's added on to it. I just find it fascinating because like literally it is illegal to, own sell or engage with nazi paraphernalia at all in germany at that time and now as well right um right and like the only buyers for this material as now it is also true is essentially american people who many of whom will turn out to be wait for it nazis well yeah there there is the moment where at least at this time there is uh the perhaps slight relief that many of the Americans buying this stuff are buying war trophies. Right. Instead yes, of buying Nazi paraphernalia yeah, because true. they are yes, Nazis. That is true. <laughs> Although it's so. only, it doesn't take very long, does it? Right, right, but, right, right. You know, right and then also the question becomes like, boy, if you're, if the thing you wanted as a war trophy is the thing that directly signifies your, that you want to bring home is the thing that is the, the main signifier of your, of the supposed enemy. I feel like there's something telling in that somewhere deep down inside. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, the weirdest experience I have ever had in an antique store. Oh, yeah. It was a consignment shop. Uh, so, you know, a lot of vendors hmm. rent space or whatever. And uh, it was in just outside of Athens, Ohio, southwest or southeast Ohio. Uh, and I was probably 13 at the time. But ran across this. There was there was one vendor there who was all about World War II, and you know maybe a quarter of his collection was particularly Nazi paraphernalia, and it was it was weird like small details. You know, it wasn't there weren't like flags or anything. You know, it wasn't set up as a shrine or right. anything. But but uh, you know it was obviously Nazi stuff, and it was like a day planner from 1935 that had you know. Just a little book. You could write down what you're going to do. It had all your important Nazi dates, like Hitler's birthday right. and Himmler's birthday. And, you know, and it's just, it's this, you know, it's flotsam and jetsam in one way, right? You know, it's just garbage right. that somehow someone has ended up with. And maybe however it got to be at an antique shop in Hawking Hills, Ohio, was somebody bought it. In 1945, from some German who needed right. desperately needed right. bread, or or you know, off of a dead soldier, but yeah, or off a dead soldier, some on on and on down the line, uh, which is you know weird. We're to encounter that stuff in the it, U.S. Today it is as and, collectors' items, right? Right, <laughs> and, and I, I, and I find the one because the thing you see most often because the thing that makes it most identifiably Nazi is swastikas, and like there's something. Right fucked up mentally about being like oh this is the symbol of my enemy i'm going to bring it home and like keep it as a souvenir this thing that like yeah it, i don't know it's just something very i find the well obviously we you and i just are not capable of processing the logic it just also seems like there's not a very far distance between that and then also eventually 
you end up becoming the Nazi. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or or if not you, like somebody down the line, not very far. I don't know. It's just Eventually, the sort of people, it. especially if you're treating as a collector's item, and at some point it becomes something you're going to sell. Right. The people, the people who bought that stuff from that antique shop in Hawking Hills. Uh, you know, maybe the guy who had it had it as a collection. Maybe it was overflow. You know, somebody's dad died, right? And they're cleaning out the attic, and all of this needed to. That's how they were getting. Rid well, of and it. that's the thing, right? And then you, when you but, think to yourself, what do you do? That uh, to me, that's the sort of telling part. Is that you hit that line of like, what do we do with this? And your answer isn't burn it, right? Your answer is profit. Uh, you know, there are other there are other answers, right? Uh, there, there is, you know, if, if say you're a German today and your grandfather dies and you're cleaning out his attic and find this little box of stuff, uh, your answer may not be burn it. You, your answer may be, I have no idea what to do with this, so I'm going to hide it. Oh uh, yeah. Your answer might be a lot of things because honestly speaking, like you shouldn't have it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like, but but it's very but, yeah, telling running, that the American answer seems to be sell it to an antique shop. Yeah, running across it in a uh, in a consumer setting in America is, is, feels weird. It feels yeah. It feels scary. And of course, really what it and, to, honestly. Yeah, and again, you know, I not not putting any anything onto the person selling it other than what we can honestly say you're profiting off of this stuff period yeah you probably uh, shouldn't but, be, but yeah but you know plenty of the default in america for getting rid of a thing you don't want anymore is to try to sell it right so it's not even like you know that's just the society we've built um and you know that's sort of it is not wholly undifferent from the society that germany year zero takes place in right uh I mean, yeah. I because, mean, really, because yeah. a lot of a lot of America is the response is I don't need this anymore. I should sell it. Aren't because I want to get my money back from when I bought it, or I want to. Well, it might be I want to get my money back from is, when I bought it, but it might be more like I have to get my money back from when I bought this. Yeah, right, right. It very well might be I've got to sell this because I've got to pay a doctor's right. bill. I guess all of that to say is I cannot imagine a person walking into that shop and buying that stuff who does not have some sort of nefarious purpose to it yeah i mean and i guess i mean you know we can always there's you can always have this sort of mental image of like this sort of like innocent like history buff but like yeah i'm oh i'm also very dubious about people who are right in no, innocent that, history I, buffs but that's me yeah, i I say that as someone who I have been open about this in the past on the podcast. I have a collection of white supremacist literature. Right. Uh, I have never paid for it. Right, right, right. It is always, I have, uh, when I encounter these things, uh, I collect them as a reminder that they exist and to keep anyone else from finding them. Right. And if I find multiple copies of a thing, uh, which usually happens with stickers, not pamphlets. But if I find multiple copies of a thing, I destroy the other ones right. and keep the one. Uh, so, you know, there are, someday I will die and my nephews will, will find a bunch of, I will well, have a box, I would a suitcase. That somewhere near near the end, you'll you'll have the presence of mind to just chuck it into a bo- like the box into a fire. Right, right, right. Be like, all right, yeah. well, I'm done with this and I don't need anybody else to find this. 
it's gone. But, but yeah, the suitcase that that stuff is kept in is is half white supremacist literature and half my old talk, tax document. Right, right, so right. Really, really easy to just throw that in a fire I, and not well, worry about. Well, yeah, and and like and again, there are like there are lots of innocent reasons, I suppose. But like, I don't know, the Nazi paraphernalia always feels like one of those ones. It just has so much like social weight to it that it's like, yeah, you feel like. Somebody's making a real serious choice right, right, when they right. decide to buy it. Also, that. yeah, this the stuff that I have collected over the years, it, I do not keep as well. Certainly not as display pieces. Certainly, uh, but but it's not just paraphernalia. It's essays. It's written text, and I keep it so that I can be familiar with the rhetoric, right? And recognize that rhetoric where it pops up in other places, right? right? So well, you know, it, a lot of mm. a lot of what uh, I heard in speeches given by former U.S. presidents right. uh, <laughs> mirrors rhetoric uh, that I would also find in these same magazines. Right. So, yeah, well, it's, and what I would think say, point out to like sort of bring it back around to the movie is that like it's worth noting that Russell is not showing them selling like a flag or like right, old, right, right, it's, right. It's, this is such more an intense piece of paraphernalia or, and, and propaganda that, like, right. the person buying it, I, I think there's a message there, though. There's definitely a message there. Uh, again, I, I hesitate to assign too much political thought-oriented motivation to Russell Lee's work, despite what the documentary that attaches to this would have me believe. Um because again, like whenever you hear him talk about his work, it always sort of has this sort of like whatever feels like the right thing to say at the moment about the work, right, right, and right. a vibe to it. But like a record of Adolf Hitler's speeches feels more like an int- a very intentional choice about what to have that the thing being sold be, because you're you're literally selling American soldiers the rhetoric of their enemy, right, right. and they're going to take it home and they're going to bring that record home like what on earth would they it's not like it's not like a thing with a nazi flag like a not you know a swastika on it that you're like oh well this is like the thing that i got when i was in germany when i was in the war that you would like that maybe you could logically like follow some path where you like get it out to be like yeah this is from when i was in the war and like i beat those sons of bitches like you have a fucking record of Adolf Hitler speeches. I don't like, know. How are you going to, like, like you, what, what, are you going to be like, having, like, drinks with your friends at your house and be like, hey, want to check out the thing I got from <laughs> the war and put on a, a record of Adolf Hitler speeches? It's so I fucked feel up. Like, I don't know. I feel like it's better to have an auditory-only format than than the visual well, stuff. It may, it may be uh, better in some, but, like, what I mean is, is that, like, we at least we you and I grew up with an image that was played by was meant for our were our parents, which yeah. to help them remind them of their parents, which is like the war vet showing off some some like bit of like thing they brought back right like it happens in movies all the time we're like oh yeah I got this in the war or whatever right and it's usually right. some like little like a cigarette lighter or something like that some some small bit of like. And it yeah. usually has an emblem on her. So it's it's like very readily right, identifiable right, right. as the thing of your enemy, right? The, like like a trophy, right? 
Whereas a record doesn't feel like a trophy as much as it feels like, ah, yes, I brought home a little piece of Adolf Hitler for me. Like, I, I it just feels different and weird. I can understand a motivation of the soldiers who buy it in the film, of it being a trophy, of it of it being in much the same way that we see it used in the film of the speech playing over ruins. It can, it can to an American, I think, buying it also symbolize similar things. Of and, this, it, and that's this speech where he's giving this, this make Germany but great. But the only rhetoric. way it's ever going to be that is if you play it on your record player at home. Right, right. right. And that's and that part is <laughs> fucked up. And understand German. Right. Also, right. and understand German. But really, regardless of what, I'm not really sort of judging, trying to judge the made up people who bought the record in the movie, okay? My point is yeah. that I feel like Rosalind is trying to say something because he's selling like that's propaganda art, right? It's not like he's selling a cigarette lighter or some some bit of like junk. It's like it would be like, oh, would would you like to buy this like four by five painting of Adolf Hitler that I did for well, like the and people did. Don't get me wrong. Well, that yeah, should happen. But there's something. But there's something, there something more deeper to it about that. I think. There is something more nefarious about it. And the more nefarious thing is that this sort of stuff at this time is only going to be still held by the true believers. Right. So the Americans are buying this, no questions asked, from someone they have to know. Right. Is is someone who still still supports, right? I think it's worthwhile to think about this in the same context as we've thought we've seen Rossellini talk about fascism in Italy by putting it all on the Nazis, right? That uh, that Rossellini here is pathologizing the German people onto a specific class of Nazi people within Germany. Uh, you know, so it's also about in much the same way that. You know, uh, Rome, open city, particularly, I think, uh, is sort of forgiving of the Italian fascists in a very overtly political way. You know, propagandistic right. way. Yeah. Uh, this is this is doing a similar thing to anyone who might have been caught up in Nazism. Well, within. yeah, yeah, and and I feel like it reminds me of a thing that we see <laughs> in um, a lot of like post-war Japanese films as well. Um, and then we and we've talked about this, and it's a little bit weird coming from Rossellini because it's about the Germans, but it's not made by a German, which adds some unusual flavor to the to the mix. But like that idea of like coming to the idea that like these people were bamboozled, these people were like led down a path that you know, yeah. But and, well, and, we also have examples in the movie. The entire plot of the movie is also how that bamboozlement continues. Right, right. right. Well, and, and but like, but that there is there is an honesty to that belief, but also a disingenuousness to that belief at the same time. Right, like that that particular way of understanding things has a a lot of risk inherent to it too. Right, um, it's useful because it can allow you to practice a you know forgiveness and things and practice a sort of like under, level of understanding and saying like yeah okay we all you know people get caught up in things and that became the way of society and you have to go along with the way of society because you can't 
you know, you're, are you going to is you are you expecting every single person to fight back that, you know, and we even see a character who talks about wishing he had done that. Right. Like we see the, right. the dad. And so, like, it's it's worth having that sort of level of understanding of, of other people. But we all you also had to be careful on the flip side of being like, well, there was just this nefarious cult up at the top that tricked that tricked everybody into belief. Right, ha- right, it, right. It is very much on a path towards like, well, the Illuminati of this of this this country essentially is control like so thoroughly controlled its populace as to make trick everybody into being a Nazi, even though none of them believe that in their hearts. You know what I mean? Well, we have it, to be careful, right? Yes, it's interesting in the family that we have the dad who's pretty anti-Nazi but sickly and has been sickly for a long time and you know we have the brother who fought to the bitter end in his own words we have the sister who is seemingly has no political life. Well, right? I mean, which is yeah, I mean, very, which is a problem know, in itself. In that's, itself. That is a problem of the movie. Um, yes. She is the only thing the closest you have, I believe. I, I may be getting characters confused because we do at one point get kind of a lot of extra characters suddenly. She is in a relationship, maybe with somebody in a POW camp. I think. Uh, yeah, she's got. Which doesn't give her. I it's not a political life. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm just right, saying that, right, like, the right. things she's got going on. Outs- because like everybody's sort of got their thing in this movie. Her thing is she's doing things she doesn't really want to do to scrape by to make money. Right. And right. also think- has somebody she's interested in maintaining a relationship with in a right. POW camp. Yeah. And it's also trying to remain, right. I suppose, pure right. for that person. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then we have Edmund who is caught between all of these forces, but none of them, none of those three are the most influential person on Edmund in this story. Which either, right? I, the most which, influential yeah. person on Edmund is a surrogate father figure who is a Nazi pedophile. Uh, so, Right. I mean, I have... I mean, I, I, I agree this movie is extremely... It's a very intense movie, and it has a lot, good, a lot of stuff going on. I've, I have minor problems with, like, elements of it, like... The idea that he would immediately latch onto this other father figure is a little strange to me. Like he's not, he's not treated badly by his his father. Yeah, and his no, father I, seems I to have think... instill talks about things that you would imagine would instill some ideas into his mind about the way the world is and would work. Right, but like Edmund's hyper resentful of the work he has to do to make money for the family, which is understandable, but like that immediately leads him to like, well, this Nazi dude, he's got it. He's got, he's got the right idea. Yeah. Um, (laughs) I don't know that any commentary would, would think of it this way. I don't know. I haven't certainly haven't encountered any of it, but it's kind of interesting that Henning, the teacher also seems to be running some sort of Oliver esque, yeah, clan it's, of yeah. thieving children. <laughs> yeah, he's got a. He's got. What if you combined Oliver with pedophilia, and then you would have yeah, yeah. this thing and going given, on? Yeah, and given the history of anti-Semitic 
interpretations. Well, <laughs> not even interpretations. It's text. Yeah, no, yeah. There's, uh, there's no yeah. no interpretation required. Given the history of the anti-Semitism around that character in Oliver Twist, uh, to to substitute it with a openly pedophilic Nazi, uh, it's a choice. Uh, yeah, it, it, to me, that strikes me as the sort of choice that you would pat yourself on the back for being like, I've subverted this character. But in reality, I don't think you've made things better. No. you no. You've just basically equated two things that you shouldn't ever be equating together instead. Uh, but the, the thing about it is, I don't know why this bothers me. Like, I don't, it shouldn't bother me. But, like, the pedophilia, like, the pedophilia thing, like, I don't under, I don't know. Like I feel like there's it 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 reminds me of like this sort of like it seems well, like it almost wants to create this like alternative reason why Nazism would exist and and not pin it on bigotry and a lot of other things like that. We, it would be like, "Oh, it's because they're pedophiles." We talked about this with Rome Open City where the portrayal of Nazis uh as homosexual within that movie. Mm. As uh, well, and you know, I, I, Rome, I, I had City, pushed back at, at that is, just to be like, just, yeah, yeah. Let's give it a benefit uh, of the doubt. Here, it is, yeah. it is much more openly homophobic because it's not just equating Nazism with homosexuality; is equating it with uh, pedophilia. Uh, just you know, Rossellini's uh, relationship with homosexuality clearly. Uh, it's bad. No, it's yeah, bad. for sure. Uh, no, I mean, yeah. and this this cements it. Like, I mean, again, I pushed back yeah. in Rome Open City because I was like, well, you know, because this is also like he's a very good actor. He, you know, right. I mean, and the actor, of course, in Rome Open City, the actor himself was open. Exactly, right? and so, so I was like, well, okay, like this could just be nothing. This could just be a big nothing. Yeah. Now we get to this movie, and it's like this is a something. This is he is. This is a purpose. He's made a choice. purposeful. Yeah. Yes, this is a purposeful uh, equivocation of Nazism, homosexuality, and pedophilia yeah. as all hand in hand. Yeah, uh, and no, yeah, don't like Mussolini, it. Don't do that. Yeah, don't do that. And Mussolini. yeah, and and so as a result, like that that for me, to a certain extent, when we get as things move down the plot line, for me, like. When we start this movie, I'm pretty engaged with like the way it works just on the surface. Like it the yeah. dynamic in that house is is an interesting dynamic. It is it is it's something you can kind of buy into because like maybe it's not the most I don't know how common that specific dynamic would be, but you have a bunch of characters who all essentially are going through the post-war in their own specific way. And then right. we meet the teacher a little bit before the middle of the movie. But it's fairly close, and around the middle of the movie is where he, like we start engaging with this idea of of this teacher's influence on Edmund, and yeah, um, and that for me that is when the movie takes a turns towards suddenly the movie becomes less interesting for me. I understand what the movie's trying to talk about and say, generally speaking, although it can be a little bit muddled. But my problem becomes like now we're not talking so much about that family's dynamics and what they're having to do to survive the post-war. And it becomes more about this sort of like now we're going to get into 
the way Rosalie understands Nazism and the war and how these things all work together. And you get into the big, the sort of the, the, the sort of anti homosexual messaging and the idea that like, I, I, you know, and then you start adding in everything that, that Edmund comes to believe, like think from that kind of taints the movie pretty extremely for me, honestly speaking. Um, I think that's fair. Um, you know, I, again, hearing Rossellini talk about it himself, uh, there's, I don't think he would sign off on this political interpretation, but we've never let, we've never let the creators, no, they don't get it. Uh, they, don't get it. they don't get, it. <laughs> they don't get to tell us what to think. So I think Edmund as, uh, you know, again, it gets back to Rossellini's sort of pathologizing all evil onto the Nazis. Uh, but Edmund, as a representative of the German people, right, who just lacks lacks a paternalistic authority, uh, and the one he has, his birth father, uh, can't provide for him, uh, and so he falls in with Nazism. You know, there's there is a metaphor. Right, but it's there. it's it's an it extremely is, simplistic metaphor. Like it's yeah, like it's, it's like not this a very is good one baby either. metaphors. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, but Rossellini's understanding of Nazism is kind of a a pretty baby interpretation of it. That, that's in, what I mean, and then, so that's why that's right? why for me, like, we have a movie that's visually very impactful and and has a lot of really intense stuff happening, and then you combine it with just like real baby political science and being like, okay, the Nazi, the, the, the German people lacked like a true authoritative state that they could believe in, in the Weimar Republic. So they fell in with the Nazis who tricked them into believing this rhetoric that no sane person would believe. And thus became, (laughs) it was proffered by like, homosexual pedophiles and then like they fell in with it and it meant they they killed their own their own paternal you know real father which again i guess would be the Weimar Republic i don't know um and then like right. and fell in this and then to me and now they regret it and it, it, it's very eh, I, it feels like it could be in a it feels like it could be in a like bad streaming service TV show now <laughs> level yeah. of like interpretation or of uh, yeah. yeah of like sort of political understanding yeah I agree I mean did the I Weimar think... Republic suck yeah but like yeah Rossellini's introduction to the international version of this film uh, talks about how it is not meant as a uh, what's the exact terminology? I can't remember. But but like it's not, it's neither meant to praise nor condemn the German people. Is basically how uh, how he describes it. I mean, and yeah, go ahead. So I was, yeah, go ahead. I was gonna say is it's accurate. He doesn't, but right, by right, by equating right. them to being children. Yeah, like yeah, right. You right. don't. Yeah, you wouldn't right. praise or condemn a child for these kinds of not yeah. knowing what to do either. 
Uh, so, so as a documentary of the state of everyday people in Berlin at the time, certainly this movie works. Oh yeah, certainly, especially the uh, first half. Is, yeah, as whatever it's trying set, to do politically. End. Right. Sorry, I right, cut you right, off. Right, right, right. Yeah. No, that's right. Another another aspect of the ending of this film is that. Uh, without all of the political confusion hoisted upon him and his lack of uh, being able to understand the world uh, ideologically, uh, Edmund is still in a point where he doesn't need all that psychological stuff to lead him to the bad end he's leading. He's already just (laughs) a starving child. I mean, it makes it worse, though, right? Because, like... Edmund feels, as he comes to terms with it, he gets the bad end, especially because coming to terms with the idea that, well, he actually destroyed the only place he could go. It's gone. Right. Like, it's falling apart. It doesn't exist anymore. And so, and he wanders around the city, right? Like, he goes and meets those other, and tries to form new community, however half-heartedly a few times and every time is rebuffed. Right. Even among like just little kid, like kids on the street. Right. right? He can, right. he finds no, no, no toehold anywhere. And right. And, and so I, yes, I mean, Rosalind is like there to a certain extent, there's a sort of like, well, you can't go fully back from this. You'll never get the old yeah. home back. But, and I think, you know, I think there's something to it that this movie is is there for also at least a little bit about how the good guys of this war have no ability to help build that community either, right? right? And no interest in it. Uh, yeah. So I don't know the ending. I think for good reason. The ending does make me think of Mouchette, the the uh, the Bresson film. Yeah, where where Mouchette at the end, Mouchette at the end similarly playing child games she's just rolling down the hill right and then rolls into the water and i think similarly mouchette and uh she's a little older than edmund here but edmund is certainly being forced to grow up quicker than he should be Hmm. uh so you know there's there's a similar of conflict between childhood and adulthood with with mouchette you know it's been a long time since she saw mouchette but uh but obviously, I think Bresson is making overt references to to the ending of Germany, Germany Year Zero, right? In, in ending Mushad that way. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's there is something definitely dissatisfying of Rossellini's seemingly intent of taking an apolitical look at. At well, the state I mean, of Germany we, well, in this moment. and that's the thing is, right? We've talked about like that's a that's impossible. Yeah, right. But also, he knows that's impossible, yes. which is why he's so conflicted about right. it. Right. Yeah, and you know, there is the other aspect of Edmund looks very much like, uh, and is the same age as Rossellini's son Romano. He just died uh in 1946 so this is also rossellini coming working through his son's death right right uh so that's an aspect of it that 
really undermines any political interpretation of it that we'd have, right? Because there's that that personal well, putting on. Yeah, I mean, it undermines it and makes it more confusing, right? Because it's like, yeah, does does Rosa? I don't know. Despite all the documentaries I've had to watch over the last like three weeks. I don't actually know what happened with Rossellini's son. I I think they mentioned Romano, him a little bit. In he one died. Of the His appendix ruptured, and he died as a result. So it wasn't. I mean, that is certainly a tragic death, but he didn't like die in the war. He died. Well, and that's the thing. It's like a medical this one makes it feel like there's almost a message that like, well, the Nazis killed my son, and and uh, yeah, and to a certain extent, might probably be, make. Make an argument that the lack of medical infrastructure left Absolutely. after Nazi I, did kill his right. son. Right. Yeah. And so I wonder if if I wonder if a that's part of the message, and then also, and then also the Americans didn't leave Italy in a place it's seemingly where that wouldn't where that would that would fix that problem, right? Which would explain some of the other things we've talked about. But what it lets you what you where it leaves you as a as a, if you start thinking about it that way is like if that's the message then really what we're, or what we're dealing with when we, we hear Rossellini speak about it and he doesn't bring that up and doesn't talk about that and seems to be constantly sort of waffling on what the movie's about to a certain extent is it just sort of a refusal to openly acknowledge that that's what he's going for like that that's what he really like that's what the movie is actually about for him yeah I don't know. I, I mean, yeah, well, not, we, we, also, will, we will literally never know. <laughs> like, yeah. it's impossible. And, of course, we get we get the introduction to the Italian version, which is one of the bonus features here, that says, you know, when ideologies stray from morality and Christian piety, the very foundations of human life, they become criminal madness. And, you know, that that whole thing that... I am okay with an Italian living in a Christian monoculture saying the Nazis strayed from morality and Christian piety. Sure. But when your particular example in your film of that straying is that all Nazis are pederasts, uh, right. You were saying something particular that, uh, you've got to have a little more nuance for, um, that he does not have, uh, sort of switching gears a little bit. I also think, you know, we talked last week ideologically about Italian neorealism and what it means to be shooting on location with non-actors that you brought from the other side of the country. Right, and then right? dubbed over. Uh, and then dubbed over. In this movie, all of the exterior stuff is shot in Berlin. Often without Rossellini there. Right. And then they took all of those German non-actors and brought them to Rome to shoot the interiors on sets. And then <laughs> we also get a really a brief moment in that backstory uh, that is very reminiscent of things we've complained about in the backstory of Knife in the Water, where you know, oh, no one's quite yeah. as overt yeah. as Knife in the Water. But they do mention that when all of the German actors got to Italy, it was the first time they'd eaten consistently for a long time. And they put on a bunch of weight because they should have. Right. They got back to healthy bodies. 
Uh, but then for film continuity reasons, production had to get them back down to being gaunt uh, with no real no real exposition on uh, what happened or how. Right, right. Well, I mean, um, the, the another documentary that came with this came with a very... Um, a very came with a very disturbing story as well that we that is very much in that vein about exactly how Rosalie convinced a non-actor fisherman to really beat the hell out of one of the actresses. Yeah, yeah, it's real fucked up. Like some real fuck, and then like we're supposed to just take that as a sign of a true auteur, and it's like this is some fucked up shit, man. Like to me, there. The more I hear about some of that kind of stuff, the more I always feel like, and I maybe this is just too, we've been just doing this podcast too long, honestly speaking. <laughs> yeah. But the more I feel like, to a certain extent, there's something a little bit dark and nefarious behind. Whenever, whenever like somebody's big thing is a lack of artifice and wanting things to look and feel real, and and I, nothing wrong with wanting to feel real because like every every movie. Beyond ones that are really purposely trying not to feel real is going for rea- like a feeling of reality, but it can very much be done without actually beating people up. We see it happen right. constantly in movies now. Like you do, like violence doesn't real violence doesn't have to take place for people to act like violence is taking place. You know what I mean? But like whenever there's these the, these auteurs who are like obsessed with like authenticity. It oftentimes feels like it's right on that 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 really right on the like the knife's edge between like it, it, b- between like oh I mean I I just want people who are not actors so they don't have all that extra like bombacity to it and then the, the other side of the knife's edge is I'm going to convince this person to actually beat this person up yeah I'm going to do this horrible thing to this actor or usually actress ninety nine percent of the time actress. To get her to be scared or yeah. to get her to There's... do this thing. And it's like, she's an actress. She can act scared without you actually beating her. Okay? Let's be very clear here. There's a line in the Roberto Rossellini documentary that's a bonus feature on this disc that says, Romare once said that Rossellini's genius was in his lack of imagination. Meaning that his desire to reject artifice... Uh, you know, led him to a realism because he did not, you know, Romero Romero says the genius and lack of imagination. I doubt Romero's actively trying to say uh, Rossellini has no imagination. But there is is damning with faint praise there. Yeah. Uh, And I don't know that Romero meant it, but a lot of the issues we have with Rossellini seem to stem from a lack of imagination. Mm -mm. Not his genius, his problems. Right. Uh, uh, yeah. So, you know, like, he convinced this guy to actually beat the woman up. Yeah. To I the mean, point where physics. the man who did it mm. talks about how scared she was of him. Right. Right? Like, she was like, uh, I mean, like, yeah, the description is, is violent, is very violent. Yeah. You don't need to do that. No. That's not realism. That's just reality. Yeah. Uh, and again, like, I get into this thing where it's like, why? Yeah, I mean, you're you're absolutely right. You don't need to do that for sure. And you also get into this thing where it's like, what? 
what is an actor if not a person who can pretend that a thing happened that right. didn't happen? Right. And what it boils down to is looking at the points in time where Roberto Rossellini's dedication to realism and reality in that way, where it was okay to fudge it, where it was okay to have a bunch of well, where, uh, where Florentine you absolutely should have uh, fudged monks. It. Like, right. <laughs> but not where, not where you absolutely should have fudged it. Not in this instance, right? You know, we can overdub the monks and make them appear to be from a different part of Italy than they're actually from. But we can't get this guy to... We've got to convince him not to pull his punches because uh, if we tell him he needs to pull his punches, he's not going to do it right. Well, and that, uh, and so that, and that, and that follows it. from a real fucked up logic, right? Because yeah, what you what yeah, and I know exactly. <laughs> I mean, Farsley is a sort of a, a, a fucked up sadism to this whole thing, if we're being really honest. But like, part of it is like, oh, well, I want all my actors to be non. I want this actor to be non actor because it'll feel more authentic. But that a non actor can't pretend to hit somebody because they don't have any training to do that. Right. So now I've got to just. But convi- also, it's. It's not that hard to get someone that training. No, I know. It's not but like, but you could see like the, the fucked up sort of sadist based, like <laughs> sadistic logic that was followed, right? Where it's like, oh, I want this to be feel real, so I got this non actor, and he's not good at acting because he's a non actor, and so I'm going to, and now he can't pretend it, and I, dollars to donuts. I bet if we go watch that movie, all that guy's acting is pretty poor. Okay, because my experience has been that these these non-actors are, by and large, unless they already had a lot of personal natural talent, pretty mediocre. And so it's like, well, I had to have this non-actor and now I've got to like, well, I guess he's just got to beat her because like he can't pretend to punch. He's bad at it. I'm not going to train him. I'm going to try to do this scene on the same day. We're not going to do any practice of the scene. We're just going to try to do it today. I better just. Get him real riled yeah. up so he actually hits her. This is my this is my plan. And even look at me, I'm an auteur. Yeah, and even not not even referencing the other movies within this movie itself. Yeah, that is a dedication to realism that does not extend to anything uh, else about the movie. You know, anything else about the movie? Yeah, we shoot we shoot scenes in in Rome. <laughs> You're in, in Rome. A studio. Yeah, and like. And like the idea that like oh were you just not like it's there's so it's it's deeply fucked up it's so deeply fucked up because it's like wait were you not feeding them when they were in Berlin you had them on staff and you weren't feeding them well enough to like for them to have started gaining weight in Berlin like what what were you doing like what what was happening like was Rossellini starving in Berlin I guarantee you fucking know he was not. Well, the, there is that bonus of what, the assistant director talking about getting his pay that maybe maybe, right. maybe money was tight enough that Rosalini wasn't eating in Berlin. Either. Well, but, I know, but I, at the same time, I do not – I don't believe it for a minute because, like, like yeah. whenever they show, like, in that other documentary, like, oh, yeah, this movie was, was written in this hotel, and it's, like, pretty fucking fancy. It's like right, I don't right, think right. Rosalini was – Maybe, maybe for Rome, Open City, but I don't think in other. I don't get the impression that Rosalini was like hard up for like money to live. Uh, yeah. So like, I don't know. I'm just saying like, if suddenly you bring them to Rome and they suddenly gain weight, like mm, that seems like a bad sign for what was happening in Berlin. You know what I mean? Like maybe, maybe you were taking advantage of people in a situation that was very dire 
maybe you are doing to your actors what the Americans were doing to them too where you have a bunch of people who are in pretty desperate need and will take whatever they can get and so you're going to take advantage of them to make your movie yeah just saying like if you're able to make a movie and as soon as you bring your actors to a place with just a little bit like more access to food and stuff they suddenly start gaining weight it's like hmm seems like maybe you were abusing them in Berlin maybe right maybe you were taking advantage of them yeah yeah and then also, you could have just shut the whole thing in Rome at that point, frankly. The bombed-out buildings in Rome did not look like the bombed-out buildings in Germany, surely. Right, right. right. Well, but the other thing is, is honestly, we don't... I'm trying to think back on the movie, we don't get that many outdoor shots with characters. Like, with like our characters. We probably could have faked it. Yeah. Well, you know, he was... Or you could have just fed him when they were in Berlin, too. That's also... Just feed him in Berlin is yeah. really the That's answer. That's really was the answer, honestly. Also... I know I, you I, want everybody lo- oh, to look gaunt to to really, you know, drive home the the hellish imagery that we have of of Berlin at the time. Certainly, gauntness adds to that, but it's not necessary. No, uh, in my I mean, mind, yeah, I mean, well, and that's and so okay. Now we're going to get into something really. We'll get real. Let's get real funky here. One of okay. my other problems in general with this like obsession with realism is also to a certain extent a sort of a desire to treat I believe and that is a desire to sort of treat your audience like babies in the sense that like a part of the audience has to take some sort of active role in a a movie or any sort of art that they're participate that they're doing it's a it is participatory and so your audience can doesn't need your actors to be perfect ideal representations of the things that they are supposed to be to still believe the things that are happening in the movie for example your actors do not have to be gaunt skeletons of people for you to buy that the actors are starving right or or, sorry sorry (laughs) no sorry i I messed that up that's the characters characters are starving i just happen to know that the actors are also starving (laughs) But, like, you know what I mean? And, like, yeah, if an actor, if a professional actor wants to engage in that sort of, like, I don't, there's a lot of commentary out there on method acting and what is or is not good things for actors to be engaged with and, like, yeah. how people have taken method acting way, way further than that concept was intended to be done and, like, taken to dangerous extremes for no real reason because there's no added benefit derived from that. Um because otherwise, what's the point of an actor even existing if you're just going to make it real? But, like, the there is, like, a sort of, like, oh, well, my audience needs to see them gaunt. It's like, do they? Like, have you ever seen a stage play? Like, yeah. I, think, <laughs> I don't know. I think there is, there's an extent that what Rosalini wants the audience engagement here to be is the same as... Uh, what we talked about with Rome Open City, where the priest is forced to watch the torture, or or with uh, Salo, where where everybody watches the torture in the end with the binocular views, you know, the part of the audience, Rossellini's intention, relationship with the audience here is making them see, right, 
and making them see this hellish thing that is happening. Uh, and, you know, that is real. It is. The hellish conditions that the people of Berlin are living under are real. Uh, but he's... But subjecting the your critique, actors yeah, to if the, the thing is, you're critiquing is not... Yeah. That's more. Right. That's actually morally reprehensible. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. If the critique is that, well, the Allies aren't helping here and didn't help in Italy either. Uh, you're also not building your own community by forcing forcing them to continue to live under those conditions while you're shooting in Germany, or forcing them to go back to living under those conditions when you're shooting in Italy. Right. Well, and that's the yeah. thing, right? Is that like I understand, like make them see, but like again, that's why actors exist. Like that's why this right. is a profession right. that people are paid to do and get good at is because you can make people feel things without actually you yourself. Like we don't have to cut off people's arms to make people understand that that's a bad situation. Like, right. You know what I mean? Like my problem here is that 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 quote unquote lack of imagination just says oh well we'll just do it for real like we'll just do it all for real and then we that then it will always be exactly what we want it to be on camera like well it'll always we don't need actors because instead we'll just make people suffer for real is is a fucked up logic to follow along like it's right like like I want to show people like a terrible thing by doing this terrible thing to this other person. I, it's it's just it's wrong and and like and and I don't understand. I I feel like to a certain extent the world took a weird fucked up path to like start praising this as a as a philosophy of 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 art of like oh right I we have to praise the people who like will just subject their actors to hell because. Like it's it's so real, like okay, but like, what is the art in them and that at that point? You know what I mean? Like, it, yeah, if you like, I, I don't know. It, it just it's like at that point it's like, well, okay, my art is in capturing actual human agony, like taking place. I don't that I don't know. I. So in that sense, like a movie like this is more of a documentary of Rosalini, of Rosalini's willingness to push his own moral boundaries than it is a, a doc a, a movie about the, about the Nazis and like and the Allied occupation at the uh, you know in the post war. It's 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 yeah. It's a meta documentary on like look how far I'm willing to go to show the thing that I supposedly abhor. Yeah. I will become the evil that I abhor in order to show it to you. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I feel like we run into this a fair amount. And, you know, I don't know, especially with a very specific kind of director. Yeah, but it's not universal. No, it's that. not. No, yeah. I know it's not. I'm just saying. This is not some byproduct of the auteur stance. I know. Right. I know. And, you know, arguably we could say that Rossellini here is not an auteur anyway. You know, he's perfectly willing to no, to I... have his assistant director shoot to his standards while he's back in Italy. Uh, 
dealing with the aftermath of an affair. I mean, divorce. Uh, but I, 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 but I, I meant more trying to get away from just specifically saying auteur. I, I, it does seem to have yeah. more this. There's this very specific kind of director who seems to be very widely lauded that this seems to be part of their. We've talked about it. It's before. I guess where I, MO. where I think about this, that sort of action popping up of, of, you know, people, uh, berating their actors into showing true emotion or whatever uh it always comes up with people i think who want to be seen as auteurs right um i think more often than not though they do end up being seen as auteurs we've like yeah right we're we're watching them in the criterion collection and that is part of the normally part of this collection's hall of fame but there are other there are people who we definitely would call auteurs, uh, who are not like that. No, I know, right? I know, and that's why so, I'm not specifically focusing on the auteur. Where I'm just saying that we have encountered, right. I would say more specifically, what I'm actually going for is the ones who are quote unquote focused on realism. Right. It right. seems to be more common in the ones who for whom and realism is, is the primary hallmark of their work, uh, like their work, at least yeah. theoretically. Right. Because it's like this, they seem to have formulated a belief where they can't get that through like acting. They can only get that through actual human suffering, basically. Yeah. I don't know. Though it's also interesting. I don't, I don't, we've gotten stories about Bresson being a weirdo, yeah. but not Bresson being a violent weirdo. Well, but also uh, bear in mind that Bresson also doesn't seem to care about his actors being able to act. Right. Like Bresson took it in a weird direction Bresson, where Bresson's like, is, oh, non-actors, is, I also want you to show very little emotion if you could. Thank right, you very right. Much. It like, is also, yeah, it is also true that Bresson's, uh, Bresson's rejection of artifice uh, was not necessarily toward realism. No, yeah, just... no, absolutely. I, Bresson is his own very special person, like in a, a very unique, it, like Bresson almost can't ever be encountered. Like Bresson was like, oh, so other director, this is a very stupid interpretation of Bresson, but like, oh, other directors have have hit on the idea that non actors are really good to use in movies, and then try to generate real emotion. What if we just use non actors in in movies, and then the sentence stops, in order to accomplish? Oh no 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 no! I just want non actors. <laughs> I want them to be how how stiff can you be? Uh, no, I I actually I like Bresson's work because of that. It's so weird, <laughs> but like, yeah. um, no, I I very and like, and I probably blown it up in my mind a, a bit. But like, if I don't know, it all seems to fit in the same sort of category of there's a very specific cadre of people whom I suspect if I met them in real life, I might not like very much. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, and, and that that's played into like the more the the more I hear about them and the way they got what they wanted out of their actors and stuff, it just feels like oh man, this is this would be this person just feels terrible to me. I don't like I'm okay with actors acting. That's cool with me. Like right, right, yeah. And you don't need physical violence to. Uh... To get that. No, no, absolutely not. And like you, and like, yeah. If you're picking, 
and if you're if you're picking your non actors, not based on a natural talent for acting that you want to cultivate, what are you picking them for? Like, what's your motive? Like, you know what I mean? Like, we're talking about this fisherman. It's like, well, why did you pick him? Because he looked like the kind of fisherman that you were looking for. Yeah, well, there's, that's... I got news for you. There's probably a lot of dudes who basically kind of look like that, and you could probably have found yeah. one that's actually an actor. The dialectics of Rossellini's uh, uh, realism are always in conflict, right? Because he did, he did pick that actor because he looks like because he's a real fisherman and he's going to play the fisherman, right? So you know, this is what we want. But then, of course, Rossellini has no no qualms whatsoever of overdubbing that guy's voice. Um, uh, well, right. Of and, saying this scene takes place in a completely different part of the country. Right. If not in a completely different country. And then also, uh, he can't give yeah. you 50% of what you want. Right, right, right. Like, right. you pick, and what it comes down to, I think, honestly speaking, I 99% of the time, I think it comes down to pure visuals. It's that, like, have you ever seen, like, a really bad, like, in, in in modern sort of movies and TV, every so often you'll be, like, you'll see a rendition of what they regard as a bad director. Yeah. And he'll just, and oftentimes it's usually focused on a young woman or something, and they'll be like, her, she's it, she's the one. You know what I mean? Like, just some random lady on the street or something like that. You know what I mean? That's the thing. Yeah. And it's oftentimes played in modern TV and movies as, like, oh, this guy's an idiot like this guy's a bad director but a lot of times that's what this feels like it's like oh he looks like the kind of fisherman i want in my movie yeah and it's like did you just make a purely like aesthetic choice like purely visually aesthetic choice about the actor in your movie rather than considering any of the other qualities that you're you might need for your movie Right. Like, if you just wanted to take a photograph of a like a very fisherman-looking fisherman, go to town. He's right there. But like, you want a, a person to act in a movie, and you're going to tell me that no one in Italy who has who is an actor might remotely look like that person. Like, take a photo of the guy and then go to do casting and try to find somebody who looks like him who is an actor. Like, I don't get it. I it feels purely aesthetic, and cool so in any still frame of your movie it will look exactly like what you want it to look like yeah but that's not that's not a movie that's a still frame of the movie you wanted somebody who could like say lines and like could like i don't know pretend to punch a woman without actually physically hurting her seems important yeah I that's yeah, it's just, yeah. what it keeps coming back to for me is that what we've learned from this box set is that Rossellini's neorealism grew out of material and physical needs, right? They didn't have access to the studios. They didn't have access to electricity uh, right. for lights. And I think he came up with an ad hoc justification of what he was doing, of being devoted to realism. But that for Rossellini, there was no, he was not tied to that ideological justification because it was just as ad hoc as 
every other time we've heard him talk about any other thing. Right. Where where that opinion changes every 10 years, depending on who he's talking to and what his audience is. So, yeah. Uh, well, and so, and what that leaves me with when we talked about the other movies is, is a couple problems, which is, what is Italian neorealism? Can it, can it be defined? If it was ad hoc in response to the, like, in Rome Open City... I think we, it, we establish I think a sort of set of baselines, and then like we, we yeah. throw most of them out the window, and the only one we keep we keep some random ones. I think it can be defined, but I'd rather define it by De Sica than Rossellini. Right. Okay. That's totally reasonable. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. But that's the problem, right? Is that like we have what it seems to be primarily the like the uh, like the progenitor of this in many ways. Yeah. Is a thing that like. I, I totally buy open Rome Rome open city as Italian neorealism. I you'll get Absolutely. no arguments me from me even a little bit. Um, yeah. although it does feature professional actors, right? It, to, in fact, the arguably the most important role in the film is played by a professional actor. Yeah, doing of an outstanding job of of portraying emotions. That he may or not be right. actually experiencing himself at the time. It's weird, right? What actors are capable of. Um, but then, like, all the other ones don't feel like they've fit, fit any definition well, that I could give of, of Italian neorealism. So, I don't know. Yeah. I would say that's true for both professional actors in Romo. Oh, I, yes, I agree. No, I, yeah. uh, I, but, I. But also. Yeah. And then immediately with Paisan, we. Uh, it starts to bifurcate, and we get actual documentary footage intercut with what is meant to be realistic portrayals of life that are shot with artifice, uh, with a lot of artifice. And here... We still have a lot of artifice here. Here is a little better than Paisan. Yeah, because it's, it's not a war movie. It's such a huge production. Yeah, Paisan right? is like an actual war movie. Uh, yeah. Which is going to require a lot of production, right? Like you can't. Yeah, and and the point of Paisan was to shoot in different parts of Italy, right? We're we're following the war through Italy, so, uh, yeah. This one just, I appreciate that Rossellini wanted to show what life was like for the people of Berlin directly post-war, and I appreciate that Rossellini wanted to show that there still was. Nazi influence, that the Allies were not materially or ideologically making things better in the aftermath of the war. Uh, but I am concerned that Rossellini also just was enacting that same sort of violence that he was accusing I, larger powers. I think we of, can definitively say he was. Like, without yeah. pretty much, I don't have any qualms yeah. in saying that. So. Yeah. yeah, no, I agree. And, like, I, that's that's kind of, like, the sort of takeaway for me is that, like, that's my and kind I think of that is, problem with the whole thing. Yeah, I think that is in line with what we've called Rossellini's mercenary approach to making film. Yeah. That, that, is, that is why he was comfortable making movies for the fascist regime. Uh, because, ultimately... He 
He's just not tied to any single ideology. Yeah. Close enough, except for seemingly the ones he verbally says he's actively rejected. Conservative Christian morality. <laughs> right. And then you kind of, and honestly, like, one has to wonder, like, is that just part of how he basically makes himself seem, like, this is, like, really not a very nice thing to say, but, like, is this how he, like, keeps a sort of edgy, cool aesthetic to his, like, by saying he rejects those things, does that, like, give him some sort of credibility with, you know, a sort of rising movement in France right around that time towards this, you know, among right. young people right. who are who are interested in making art and are, you know, like, you know, oh, well, yeah, I have to, is that sort of a part he's playing? Is I guess the question I have to ask is, like, those are those rejections more of a of a part being played? Right. Right. Yeah. And certainly, you know, homosexuals being universally portrayed as evil is not something that falls on Rossellini's shoulders. No, I, no. You're, you're, that's that true. Is, but like that is common in Western cinema throughout Western cinema history. And we get to criticize all uh, of them, too. And we get to criticize all of it. Yes, he's not the only one who's yeah. going to get criticized when we find it in the movie either. But the Nazi, the Nazis are evil enough that you don't need to throw that on as yeah. some sort of unconscious justification to their evilness, right? And and that, which is yeah. really what it seems like he's doing. Yes, absolutely. To me, a hundred percent. I agree completely. Um, and that feels real, real gross. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I just, I don't know. I just, I don't. Yeah, I I had some other thought process about like what, you know, my problem with this this kind of cinema. I've I've lost it, but yeah, like I just I don't know. I also I'm really bothered by the idea that he went like there's something again, I can't kind of get over the there's a sort of taint to the idea of like going to a place to make a movie about how much the people in that place are suffering. Oh yeah, that's always bad. Like I that's understand no that Italy it also where. is suffering, so it, they, he may feel there. It, it may feel okay because, like, oh, we're all we're all in pretty fucking bad shape here right now. So, like, particularly if you are not living on the ground under the same conditions of the people you are portraying, yeah. Uh, or, or if you, I don't know, uh, convince these people that you do understand their plight and want to show their plight to the world. And that you'll help them in the future if they agree to be in your movie. And then you never actually fight for uh, mineral rights for the native (laughs) South Americans who you have forced to reenact. Well, Uh, that's that's the thing, right? Like, that's, yeah, exactly. I mean, and when that's why we get always down to, like, like maybe in the end, you know, wrestling is maybe this example isn't as extreme as a lot of the other ones we're sort of talking about, but, like, in the end, like, I'm pretty sure the Germans could handle telling the story of what happened in Germany post-war. Maybe, maybe, maybe Rosalind doesn't need to tell that story. Yeah, and I don't know. It's also fair that the the people he has, the Germans he has advising the script, including Marlene Dietrich, are. Already political exiles. There are people who left Germany 
while the Nazis were in power. Yeah. So they're not. Well, I mean, not yeah, I don't know. Who, I don't know 100 necessarily know the on the ground stuff. They may know the, the on the on the ground stuff now if they went back or whatever, maybe. But even then, they went yeah. back with like it's like a like a goodwill tour. It's there's a lot of like because I was like, and even then, like advisors aren't the same thing as just letting a group of people tell their own story. Right. Like right. we've talked about this with like other countries. This is not the first time we've had this conversation. Like, cool. You got an advisor. That's that's good. I am glad that you didn't just fucking wing it. <laughs> but like also like presumably the pe- and like and this is kind of a an interesting case because usually we're talking about, uh, you know. It's usually even worse in the sense that like. Oftentimes, there's not even an advisor. Oftentimes, the advisor is, is not even really a force that like can like enact any sort of influence on the director anyway. Um, but like, maybe just like maybe you don't need to. I don't know. Like maybe I don't know. Just don't I need to. I think ultimately a problem we run into is that Rosalini made really great movies. Usually, I'm not. <laughs> I'll allow. I mean, that. I I like with, some with an opinion. Yeah. Rosalini made really good movies, and because of that, I think people make excuses for his ideology, mm. and that happens a lot. Yeah. Right. Um, and sometimes it's easier to see through than others. And Rosalini, it's been happening since 1945. Right. So sometimes it maybe is harder to see through. But, like, there's a point in the documentary bonus feature on Roberto Rossellini on this one where the narrator, talking about his time making movies for the fascists, calls him a flank of changing fascist oh, I Italy I, I, from I, within. I almost and offers hurt no myself. evidence. We have not. Yeah. Yeah. I rolled my own so my, any yeah. evidence that he ever did that. Yeah. I rolled my eyes so hard I almost hurt myself falling out of my chair. Like, I was like, yeah. what? Like, but the movie, that documentary is maybe. I I'm trying I could I was trying to come up with a word to describe that that mo- that documentary is is kind of hot garbage like honestly that documentary is so incredibly flattering of Rossellini in every regard and says and as a result in that effort makes some of the most fucked up statements you'll ever hear in a movie um there's just it's so much like um there was one scene I think it I don't remember which movie it was about but like at one point he's like it was really hard to, it's hard to, it's very surprising that he didn't succumb to her charms, I think was one of the phrases that the movie documentary uses about, like, one of the, like, lead actresses they're, he was working with. And it's like, I, that's a I think they're actually talking about, about, I think they're talking about Dietrich. I, th- I thought they were, but I couldn't remember. Sequence. But I can't really remember. There's also, you know, about three quarters of the way through the documentary, we, we leave behind anything that would be directly pertinent to what you and I interacting right. with this movie. But in that section, they do talk to Ingrid Bergman, who tells a story about shooting Stromboli, that uh, she talks about how, you know, she didn't know any Italian. So she's speaking English in these scenes to be overdubbed. And the Italian non-actor she's working with, uh, who don't know anything about timing or interacting with an actual actor, uh, um, you know, and don't even speak the same language, so they're not actually having the conversation they're meant to be having in the movie, right? 
so the way Rossellini deals with that is that he put cords in the shoes of the Italian non-actors so that, you know, he could pull the string when it was time for them to talk. And then they say whatever they want to the emotional range that Rossellini wants them to have. But only so that they're giving the vi- correct visual for when they're overdubbed later by, you know, this movie, this movie, Germany Year Zero's shot from a 15-page treatment. And right. that seems to be Rossellini's general thing was he had emotional ideas for any individual scene. But the actual script wasn't even written until after all that stuff was shot. Right. So, I mean, so how do you how do you do that? Yeah. Well, I mean, the the, the actor shoe thing is like just case in point. Like, what the fuck is the point of this? Like, what was the like what was the decision that brought you to this person if you can't even ask them to say something to another person? Like, right on time. Like you you just it's purely aesthetic. It's it's which yeah makes no sense. And that's like. Rossellini is dedicated to a visual realism, but film is not only a visual medium. Right, exactly. And and yeah. and he obviously knows that. Yeah. yeah. So why pretend otherwise? Right. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like yeah. The, but yeah, that documentary man, like that that documentary. Yeah. The the, the oh, he's he's he played a major role in the in the fall of the fascists. It's like. No, he didn't. What? I mean, he made movies for, like, the Navy. Like, I don't understand. Yeah. Like, you can't. Pl- that's not he an He played argument. a major role in the fascists recruiting young people to fight. Yeah. There's, that's just that's where he that played argument. a major role. Yeah. He did not do some sort of subtle anti-fascist work through this. Well, and, and I'm just. Because he I'm was called, not interested in doing that. Right. And I'm called to mind that, that thing about, the, about um, what's his name? Mussolini's uh, son. Oh, shit. Son, Vittorio. I can't. Yeah. I, I just can't forget him being in that interview with him like oh really they weren't when i was working with them right it's like right, it's right. so it's so deeply cynical and like it and but feels very accurate like yeah yeah wasn't wasn't a communist when i was working with him he was making recruitment movies for the navy like i don't know right um and yeah i don't know it's just this movie i don't know i just keep coming back to like in the end personally like i don't there's a lot of very impactful things that happen in this movie. I don't really like the second half very much until we get to the very end of the second half. I think essentially Edmund's interaction with the Nazis is a dead zone of the movie yeah. that I don't care for. It's not good. It's It doesn't feel intellectually engaging in any way. Yeah. Um, but it's very impactfully shot. It's very – the visuals right. of the movie there are, are scenes- very powerful. There are scenes in this movie I will remember. Yeah, absolutely. Edmund totally. walking through the streets and hearing the organ from the old church. Absolutely. From the 100%. bombed out church. Uh, yeah. Will not forget that. Uh, the you know the panning across of ruins of Berlin as we hear Hitler's speech. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, that, that scene's Phenomenal very Phenomenal image. Bear in mind, that fits absolutely. into the part that I actually cared for, that I actually liked. Like, right. that's the first. Right. Well... It's at the end of that part, right? It's before the the Nazi thing gets takes over the film completely. Like, I mean, there's like there's a lot of interesting things that happen. Like, he tries to sell that scale, and this guy just guy with a car who clearly has money just fucking rips him off yeah. and like fucking like right, 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 just fucks him over. Um, there's a lot of really yeah. there's a lot of really good scenes in this movie, and it's visually very compelling. Uh, but like, I feel 
in the end, I keep coming back to this. Like, but did it? Did it need to be made? Did it need to come into existence? Was Rosalina the right person to bring this thing into existence? Right. It's. Uh, I mean, clearly, audiences didn't think so. Because it didn't do very well. But it didn't um, do very well. Uh, yeah, I think. I think the theme of this movie about how war irrevocably damages community is good. Yeah. And I love it. Uh, but yeah, ultimately, I don't. I'm less inclined to make an argument about whether or not it was Rossellini's story to tell. But I think they're probably. Rossellini has issues in telling it, certainly. So, right. Yeah. Well, probably time to pull this one to a close then. Yeah, we're going to go in a circle. We've already kind of circled a couple times. We 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 will not right, right. we're not going to cut break any new ground at this point. Yeah. So this has been Germany Year 0, the final film in the Roberto Rossellini trilogy of war films. Box set Spine number 500 that trilogy is. Wow, we've made it so far. Uh, <laughs> I said that very nonchalantly. Yeah, I, I don't yeah. know why. I, I... Uh, I am actually very impressed that we've made it this far, and I'm very happy to have made it, it this far. It is personally unexpected. I yes. could not yes. conceive that when we started that we were actually going to make it to 500. The sky's the limit, Adam. Literally, because <laughs> Criterion it's will true. never stop. Dear God. Yes, they just they just keep piling it up. The heat death of the uh, universe next... will be the end of the Criterion Collection at this point. Next week, we'll be talking about Spine 501. I'm very excited. Wim Wenders, Paris, Texas. Uh just always a delight to see Harry Dean Stanton show up. Mm. You know, that's really what I'm happy about. <laughs> I love Harry Dean Stanton. Um, but yeah, looking forward to that. But this week it was Germany Year Zero and Rossellini's War Trilogy coming to an end. Thank you so much for listening to Lost Criterion. I'm, as always, Liam Glass. With me, as always, John Patrick Oatari Dorgan. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs>